Welcome to episode 32 of Shailen on Batman. Tonight we're going to do something a little bit different. We've already had like an intro for uh, the Batman Forever commentary, which this uh, episode is about. Like this episode is Batman Forever with Mark Hughes. He's our guest tonight. But before that, we want to take a, a brief moment, if you will, to talk about what has recently happened um, to Shailen on Batman. Uh, the last episode, we had Al Mayembe on, and it, like the, we broke the internet. We really did. And we really just want to like talk about that and how thankful we we are at Shailen on Batman for Al Mayembe coming on and giving us one of the like a real exclusive scoop of Doomsday being confirmed and Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. And like, there's another thing that he told us that kind of got buried in the lead that the, uh, do you bleed? You will that, that line that, that famous line at the end of the Batman v Superman trailer is from a dream. So we had 16, over 16,000, uh, listens on SoundCloud alone, like, that's not including iTunes. Like, we have no idea how to get any iTunes, uh, uh, Statistics. Like, yeah, like, we have no, we have no idea how to do that. So, we had over 107 online articles written about us. We were in the Huffington Post, abcworldnews.com, so many different places, Cinema Blend. It was crazy. Like, this, like, all of our hopes and dreams. Thank like, you just, is what he's getting at, guys. He's saying thank you. Yeah, all of our hopes and dreams, like of getting, like having people listen to who we are and what we are about. Like we had like a hundred new followers. Our Facebook page blew up. Our Twitter blew up. It was crazy. Like never in my wildest dreams that I ever, ever in a million years think we'd have all that publicity just shined on us for that moment in time. And we're just taking a like brief. Uh, look back at that last episode because, like, I remember talking with Tom and Kyle, like, oh my god, we're at a thousand. Oh my god, we're at five thousand. Holy crap, we're at ten thousand listens within like a three day period. It was crazy. It was, it was climbing so fast. I remember after we dropped the episode, I checked back maybe every hour or so, and the viewership would literally double in that time. It was every hour. Like, it never in my wildest dreams did. I ever expect that. Like, I remember, like, we always like, man, this one might break a thousand. This one might break, you know, this number. But never, ever did I ever think we'd get to to where the levels we, you know, we were at with that last episode. Like, for me, like, thank you to everyone who listened. We hope that we got a, a fan out of you, out of the show. We really, really, really appreciate uh, everyone listening and tuning in and because when he dropped that, you could hear it all in our voice. We were like, oh, my God, yes. Like, Kyle, over, over, like Kyle had an orgasm. <laughs> you Kyle, after the episode, oh, my God. <laughs> after the episode, uh, after we uh, hung up the Skype call with El Mayembe, Tom broke a, broke a fucking chair. <laughs> like, that's how excited we were. Like, oh, my God, we cannot believe this. And never in my wildest dreams. Um, did we ever think that? Did you guys have anything else to add or say in regards to that? Um, other than uh, Mr. Almanbe was a fucking amazing guest to have on. Um, no man, that was just crazy. Thank you to all the fans that made that possible. 
thank you to Alamambe one more time. I know I've thanked him a hundred times on Twitter personally already. Um, go check out uh, Heroic Hollywood, though. That's uh, that's his website. Um, he's adding more stuff to it constantly. I've been I've been checking it out myself and uh, HeroicHollywood.com for sure to get your Alamambe fix, but. Also, something we really need to talk about is uh, ShaneLeanOnBatman.com. It's kind of a big deal. We're kind of starting to try to not steer away from SoundCloud because that's where our content goes, but we have a website full of everything you need, ShaneLeanOnBatman, now. And it is very important that you go there and check stuff out. Kyle, after after you saw kind of like... Because I was at Comic-Con Sunday, so I didn't, like, see, like, I wasn't, like, around, like, for most of the day Sunday. And I, when I finally got home and looking at all the different stuff, and like, we were trying, there was a moment we were trending on Facebook. And Twitter. Um, um, what did you think of the, all of it, Kyle? It's a surreal experience. Just, you know, like, even all you do look at it, it's just a number on a screen. It doesn't seem like it mean much, but the, just... The realization that, like, wow, over 10,000 people have listened to our content right now, and it's continuing on the grill is quite an experience, I must say. Like, honestly, I just want to thank the fans so much for all the support that they've given us, and I hope to see a lot of them stick around for our future content, because we have lots of it planned. Yeah, definitely. Tune, stay tuned for what we have going on for our next uh, episodes, because we'll have Brett Cole and Lee Bermejo on. I'm excited. Like, that episode really opened up a lot of doors for us. I mean, I, we've always been able to get people to come on, but now it's like, oh, we are, like, out there. Like, neck and... I wouldn't say neck and neck with Batman and Batman, but we are creeping up that that uh, that highest mountain peak of his uh, Batman podcast. We're creeping up. So Yeah, Lever Mayo saying yes was almost as exciting as... Amiambe saying Doomsday. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been trying to get a comic book artist now since January, and I reached out to Faybach, who does the artwork for Batman Eternal, but he's super busy with uh, his deadlines and stuff, and the other day I was like, Lee Bermejo, we'd love to have you on the podcast. Like, I didn't even say, like, hey, we've had this guy, this guy, this guy. He's like, I lo- would love to. Let's work out a time. Let's make this happen. I was like, whoa. And I woke up at, like, 5 a.m. to him tweeting that because he's over in Italy. So when I, I was like, oh, my God, I cannot believe this. And, like, my whole, like, week has been, like, perfect because of So next guest is, is going to be Lee Bermejo. Um, like I said, we're not trying to take away anything from like this next upcoming episode with Mark Hughes. You know, we talk about uh, we record this at, like a few weeks ago with the when the Batman v Superman trailer dropped, and we talked to him about that and like some of the stuff that happened. Talked a bit about the Joker as well, right? There's one more thing that we want to like briefly touch on with uh, with Shannon on Batman, other than the website, is the lack of security. On the set of Suicide Squad, it is just baffling to see all the stuff that we're seeing. Like, whole scenes are being recorded. By That's what happens when you let Kevin James be head of security. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. It is, like, I'm, like, 
Yeah. You mean when the whole movie got released on Twitter? <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. It like I said, I tweeted last night. I was like, Warner Brothers gives zero fucks on the set of Suicide Squad because there's no security whatsoever. Zero. A big fat goose egg. Yeah. It's just amazing how completely opposite the security has been between Batman vs Superman and Suicide Squad. Like, you know, Batman vs Superman's been done filming for a while, and we still have literally seen nothing. Other than that, except for the tra- like one minute of footage from the trailer, and that's it. Like, and then on the other side, eight seconds. Yeah, something like that. And then on the flip side, we have Suicide Squad, and I feel like I've already seen like thirty minutes of the movie <laughs> because of leaked footage and screenshots. We've seen a whole scene between the Joker and Harley. Like the Joker, pretty bitch slaps. Um. Harley Quinn. Like, yeah, Harley smacks her across the face. I'm like, oh, why? How is there no security? And I don't want to see this. It. <laughs> it's such a cool scene, and I wish it would, I would have been surprised when I saw the movie. Yeah, and people were making it gifs out of it, or gifs, or whatever they call it, and they were making memes out of it. Like, <laughs> that just happened. That just what? happened. What? What's so funny? <laughs> you said memes. <laughs> Is it memes or memes? They're memes. That Whatever. one. The second one. <laughs> you just made a fool of yourself on the internet. It's home of memes. <laughs> Alright, sorry, interweb. <laughs> Go ahead and flame Justin as much as you'd like, guys. <laughs> uh, I was like, what's everyone like? Isn't that what it's called? I don't know what these... You went from hero of the internet with all my MBA to loser of the internet with memes. <laughs> <laughs> and within one episode. One episode, nine minutes, you fucked everything. <laughs> fucked it up, Justin. So yeah, like, like th- seriously, thank you to all the fans. Thank you to everyone listening. Thank you to all the online articles. Um, I really want to like take this time to thank Mark Hughes because it, I, like in February, I had tweeted to uh, or emailed Mark about like. I won't get like in detail like the conversation because that's a private personal conversation. But without Mark um, kind of reaching out to him and vouching for us, I don't think we'd ever get, gotten El Mayambe. Like, like as awesome as a person he he is, and as as busy as he is, like he has his own things to do. He he had no like he never ever ever had to drop any scoops. He could have just came on and talked about Batman and Superman and the animated series and 89 Batman and the Dark Knight and I would have been satisfied because like and if you heard in the last episode we talked about like there's two people I always wanted to get on this show. It's Bill Ramey and Al Mayambe and we finally got it. Like, so now the show's done guys. We're quitting. <laughs> no, yep. we're not. Our bucket list is finished. <laughs> We have more places to go, more people to talk to. But yeah, I really I really want to take some a moment just to thank Mark for that. Like Mark really Mark has been a blessing for us since the like the moment he he said he'd come on and he's this will be his fifth and sixth appearance on the show with this Batman Forever cuz it's a two-part episode. Um he's been a blessing and he's coming up to Michigan. We're going to hang out with him like Mark has been more gracious than, he, like, he ever had to be. And for that, we, like, I say it all the time to him. 
and emails and private conversations. Well, thank you, Mark. So thank you for that. Uh, and then now let's get on to the show. This is this is all commentary. This is Mark Hughes' first commentary track for Batman Forever. So let's lead right into that. Thank you. You'll guys. like it a lot. It's Tomless. It's yeah. Tomless. <laughs> Bye, Tom. Bye. <laughs> Hello, Mark. Oh, hello. <laughs> Today we don't have Tom. Tom is doing Tom things, but Kyle is here. So um, before we jump into the commentary track on that, uh, we recently got the first still of Jared Leto as the Joker. We have yet to talk about that. I know Mark has talked about it on uh, the BOF podcast that I listened to this morning. Uh, so far, I like it. I, what I enjoyed about the the photo of Jared Leto is it's so bold and ballsy that it completely made me forget about Heath Ledger's role as the Joker, and that's what I liked about it. It's made me completely like not even think about oh yeah, like that amazing. It's it's given me hope to that someone will take on the role of the Clown Prince of Crime. What do you think, Kyle? I was a little apprehensive at first when I saw it, just because it was so different, like. No, we're coming from the Heath Ledger Joker, and you know he's got the crazy look. Takes crazy, just a whole new level, fully psychotic look of him, and looks like he's hard into prison or whatever. All the cats, very interesting, weird look. Yeah, there was a lot of like, uh, like back internet backlash, of course, because anything DC drops, everyone hates for some reason. I don't know why. Um, Good to be. Yes, I agree. I, I agree a lot about that. Everyone like everyone that I talked to about it, like personally, like on Facebook and Twitter, all the tattoos. But I always argued about the fact that uh, if if a man's in prison, why would he have white? Why would he have the white makeup on? Like I can understand having the green hair because when you're like that stuff takes a long time to wash out, you know. But at the same time, it's like he's in prison. Why would he just be all Joker makeup still? Like that just makes no sense. Uh, what do you think, Mark? Well, I liked uh, I liked the image. Uh, I'm I'm glad that the it's it it's for the most part. I think we got what everybody was kind of expecting. Uh, if you if you put the tattoos aside for a minute and the teeth aside, uh, he that picture and the the expression on his face, the pure maniacal, malevolent, violent, you know, coiled tension of that image. And him screaming, almost like you know, rending his hair, is precisely the kind of Joker that uh, that I was I was personally expecting that we would get a really intense kind of crazy manic Joker out of him. Uh, Ledger, 
had the twitchiness and he had but he also there was a certain level of constant self-control to ledger's joker i never got the impression that he was losing control of himself or the situation and not that i not you know the joker i think i think it's worth having a portrayal of the joker who embraces his own insanity and who embraces his own mania and who might just burst out laughing and be unable to control himself, you know. Uh, so I like that, and that's what I got. The, looking at his face and his pose, that's the impression I got from Leto's Joker. The tattoos, uh, I personally, I think it's, uh, I think it's, I don't think there's anything inherently non-Joker about the tattoos. I think uh, there are different forms of vanity, and I think I under, but I understand people who feel like you know. For me, when people say that for them the Joker sh wouldn't have all the tattoos or wouldn't be so self-referential, uh, you know, I I think there's a valid argument uh, to support that personal. Po and at the end of the day, they don't really have to make an argument because it's aesthetic taste. You know, that's uh, what I keep telling people is if you like cheeseburgers, you like cheeseburgers, whether and you don't have to explain, you know, somebody can't tell you, well, you shouldn't like cheeseburgers, though, because a turkey burger is better. You know, you like what you your taste is your taste. And if it doesn't aesthetically appeal to you, then I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. If it does. Now, if you say that's not the Joker, period, that's different. But I understand when people say that's not the Joker, it's inherent that they mean to them, it's not the Joker, you know. Uh, now, if they go further, and if there's, there are some people who've argued like there's just the Joker would never do that. There's no way, et cetera, et cetera. And then if they're making a true assertion that you know that's not the Joker, and if you think it is, then you don't know the Joker. That's kind of you know far afield. But uh, I, I completely get why people had a, a shocked reaction and a strong reaction to it. And if there are people who are apprehensive, I just, eventually it'll come down to that performance. That's what's really going to do it. It's, it's awesome to see, I guess it, it's not awesome, but it's, it's the same reaction to when Heath Ledger was cast as the Joker, that negative reaction. And then that first, like that first still from, uh, was that May of 2007 where it just showed like his face and then like his eyes were closed. There's a lot of that negative reaction. It's, it's, it's just like if that's if we get a great performance, that's all I care about. I really don't care for the look because we've had so many. There's been so many different iterations of the Joker. I was actually hoping to see the Scott Snyder like iteration with like this face is kind of like peeling off. Like that would have been interesting to see. But I'm like Jared Leto is a fine actor. I think if there's no one else in the world that could have taken on. A role after Heath Ledger like Jared Leto I think he's one of the Chris Nolan always talked about fearlessness um, and I feel like Jared Leto is also fearless in his portrayals of if you look at uh, what was that D Dallas Buyers Club just a complete tour de force uh, portrayal yeah. of that like I just think he's got the right stuff he's got the right I just I'm just excited for all the way around and I have one before we start the Batman Forever uh, commentary track I have one more question what do you think at the end of that trailer of Batman v Superman? Do you think when that do you bleed you will? Do you think that's Batman, or do you think that could potentially be like a villain like Doomsday? I think I think it's I. My opinion is that it's almost pro, it's almost certainly Batman, okay. but I don't discount the possibility uh, that with the metallic voice like that, you know, uh, it, the voice sounded very metallic. 
Uh, it was very gravelly. Uh, the audio being the way that it was done, I wouldn't discount the possibility that it's kind of a bait and switch intentionally and that they used the audio because it fit over the scene, but that it's going to be a surprise and that it is a villain instead of Batman that says it. But no, uh, I do think it's Batman. Uh, I'm, I feel pretty sure that it's that it's going to turn out to be Batman, and I think it is. It's a it's kind of a Batman thing to say because he wants to intimidate Superman. You know, it's uh, if you remember in uh, Batman Begins, he's he hauls some he hauls Flask up and says, "Swear to me," and drops him, and Flask thinks he's going to die, and it's like that's. Batman's about to fight an invincible alien that people think is a god, you know, and he he came wearing armor, so he knows uh, the, he knew he was going to have to fight the invincible alien god. So I think he's tossing a little bit of trash talk out there, trying to intimidate maybe. Uh, and I I think it's that's just kind of that's Batman par for the course a little bit. Awesome answer. So people who are listening to this uh, this episode of the podcast. Line up your DVDs, your Blu-ray players, if you're streaming it on Amazon or whatever, get it to absolute, absolute zero. So we're going to press play, guys. And are you, are you ready, guys, Kyle? Yep, I'm ready. Go. Three, two, one, and go. I love how they do the Warner Brothers it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll admit, I, I wasn't a big fan of the. I, I like this film, but I was not a big fan of the opening. The the opening credits uh, compared to the previous films had such wonderful opening credit sequences. Uh, this just kind of felt MTV. Yeah, and a little derivative. It was like you know Superman, but without it, not quite as flashy. <laughs> you know. Uh, Like it gone, gone's gone is Tim Burton, gone is Danny Elfman, gone is Michael Keaton. So in 1995, when you're going to see this, now I was young. I had to I had to watch this for the first time on VHS because after Batman Returns, wow, after Batman Returns, like my parents were like, I don't know about this Batman because Batman Returns got really dark. Um, so they we had it, we watched it on VHS. I watched it like it was like a Christmas gift. I remember that it was a Christmas gift that I got on VHS for it. What do you when you when you went and saw this movie? What were you looking forward to? Like, were you looking forward to like the new Batman, a new director, or were you kind of like I don't know? Me personally, uh, I was. Well, I liked the the Val Kilmer casting because I liked that we were getting. Uh, I mean, Michael Keaton's awesome, without a doubt. So uh, I don't mean this in a derogatory way about him, but I liked that we were getting a more physical Batman. I knew that 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 uh, Val Kilmer just kind of, you know, he without the suit on looked like Batman, you know, uh, and I had seen, uh, you know, if you've seen Falling Down, uh, then you know, and uh, Lost Boys, uh, Schumacher has he's a good director, and I knew that he would take it and kind of I, I expected it to be I didn't expect it to be as campy. As it was, uh, and not to ha I didn't think it would have quite as many one-liners. So much neon too. <laughs> yeah, very, 
very day glow kind of uh, kind of movie. Uh, I did. You know what? That's the first time I've never noticed that before. I just saw there's a girl with white makeup and green hair in the crowd. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, that was kind of interesting. Um, I want. I, I I guess no. This predates Harley, right? Ooh, I want to say that Harley was created. What year was she? Early in? 90s? Yeah, she, yeah, yeah, like ninety-two or something, maybe. The thing that this. Okay, so I guess it wouldn't be Harley, but uh, probably still wouldn't be Harley because it's not the right color scheme for. Her, but that's interesting, though. Right. Because it was definitely a girl there with like bright green hair and white makeup on. It looked like on her face. Um, now I was, I was not a fan of uh, Batman Returns. I thought it, it looks terrific, you know, and, and, uh, I liked the bat suit. It was a terrific bat suit. Um, and I, Danny DeVito looked like the penguins and looked great so much of the time. Uh, but I just did not like it. Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman was awesome, oh, yeah. but I didn't like the film. At the end of the day, I did not like it. I didn't like seeing Batman killing people and grinning about it. Uh, I didn't like... Oh, Batman grins in this one. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I didn't like him killing people and grinning. Like, he, he grins while he kills people in Batman Returns, you know? Oh, yeah. He sticks the bomb in the guy's pants, and I was like, it's bad enough he's killing someone. It's worse that he's killing them and doing that. Uh, smiling about it so yep. oh yeah oh cg uh i think this is one of the first significant uses of cg for a character in movies was that batman swooping in scene there wasn't it right oh it hasn't aged very uh yeah. i think that it, it, for like there's a few scenes that don't really hold up like in this with the cg but like that was fine for me and, like, here we have uh, Bell Kilmer as Batman. Pat Hingle is back as Commissioner Gordon. And they have this really weird, like, conversation between the three of them. I don't know why, because obviously Two-Face is, like, holding a hostage. Why are they talking? I don't know. It's just weird for me to set up this whole thing. Let's just get to it. Start punching evil in his face. I like that he finds her her psychology work naive and insightful. <laughs> <laughs> it's It's... I just, it's such a weird, like, patchwork. And she, and, like, Nicole Kidman is a great actress, but the whole role is the problem. It was so underwritten, and, like, it's, she tried to be, like, the Lois Lane slash Vicky Vale of this movie. Like, just trying so hard to get under Batman's skin. I don't, I don't know. Under his belt, you mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, well, as Batman says, are you trying to get under my cape? <laughs> I love the line, too, when he's like, let's start this party with a bang. Such an awesome scene. Oh. Yeah, there's just so much bright neon color in this. Now, you both yes. you both saw the, uh, the Red Book edition, right? We've all seen the Batman Red Book edition? Yeah. Yeah, I, it's... What, when you see that film, just the aesthetics of that film and how much the the color, the extreme color and neon is toned down, it's really interesting just how much of a difference that makes in how the scenes come across. Because there's like this scene here with the weird, like they have neon on their guns for some reason. And it seems so stupid that it detracts from what's happening. But if you remove that, 
then it's just a bunch of guys in ski masks with guns shooting, and it suddenly becomes a normal action scene, you know? And up until this point, this has been the best Batman fighting in a Batman movie. Yeah. Like, he can, it seems like he can actually function, where, as in the, the 89 movie, he just can't. And then Batman Returns, he, like, fights for, like, 30 seconds. And then at the very end, he fights the Penguin, like, barely. Like, he doesn't... Yeah. This one, he's actually, like, kicking ass. But, yeah, that Red Book edition, like, yeah. starts a lot differently as well. Like, it starts off in Arkham Asylum. And, uh, like, it just it seems, like, more cinematic to me than this. I'm not saying, like, this is a complete... Like, it's not Batman and Robin bad, but it's not... Uh, there's just things that I'm missing from it. That psychological undertone that with... Because once you see the Red Book edition, you're like, well, why didn't they just edit it this way? It's so much better. Yeah, now I defend this movie a lot. I recognize its flaws and how cheesy it is and just how much in it is really just goofy. But scene right here. Yeah. <laughs> but I, but I also realize that, you know, they Batman there are a lot of there are lots of kids that are fans of Batman. There are little kids that are fans, there are young kids that are fans and uh, they deserve to have Batman movies they can go to as well. And this is a faithful... Ba I mean, it's very faithful uh, depictions of Batman. He's a heroic character. Uh, uh, so I like the movie, and I think this is a valid interpretation of Batman, but it is, admittedly, once you've seen Schumacher's... what Schumacher was originally going for uh, with some of the other stuff and some of the a lot of the deleted scenes and everything... It's hard. It makes it harder to watch this movie when you've seen a version of it that isn't so terrible. I love that it. It's not just acid. It's boiling acid. <laughs> I love that. It's acid not burning through the safe. <laughs> like, we're, how does that not physically work? If it's acid and it's like it can take out somebody. Like, I understand. Like, it's me like thick metal, but still at the same time. Like, if it's acid, doesn't acid just burn through everything? Isn't it corrosive? No, actually, there there are acids that won't, and that's a vault, and it's probably chemically treated on the inside and out to make sure that certain kinds of acid won't just be used to try to burn through the locks and the mechanisms. So, I believe it or not, there it, it is, hypothetically, I don't know if, I have no idea if that's true, that safes are designed with something like that but it would make sense so uh, I can you know uh, I know there's acid that you can get that doesn't even burn through plat that doesn't burn through rubber but that will eat metal or anything you put in it you know if you remember Breaking Bad when they uh, the bathtub scene <laughs> yeah. yeah and then like this guy looks like Newman from Seinfeld that Batman saving and then like he like, this whole scene just doesn't make sense because it goes, like, as this vault is falling back, it, like, goes, it's like they rewound, re, they rewound the film reel, and it, like, just, like, sits perfectly in, it's just, yeah. Gone is, like, this is, like, before the Nolan-verse. I wish, I wish Chris Nolan would have been able to take, like, a Batman Forever, because there is a lot of, like, psychological underpinnings to it. If he would, like, take... Like what was going on in the '90s, and like did like a Batman Forever, like uh, like a Chris Nolan type with the Riddler, and no Two Face. I think that would have been really awesome. And Batman swinging on the helicopter. Yeah, this is uh, 
it's it's interesting, I think, to to look at this and remember just how much a lot of fans complained about this and made fun of this. And I'm like, well, this isn't all that different from the scene in Batman Begins when he's hanging on a he's hanging from the uh, from his bat line on the train as the train's going and uh he somehow is managing to like avoid hitting anything or getting killed and that thing is going a lot faster than this helicopter was <laughs> uh and then i just did not like harvey uh tommy lee jones's performance in this movie at all it's just way over the top yeah, yeah. Way over the top Almost trying to out Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey at times. And they, he didn't either. I don't know if you guys heard that little like inter- interview with Howard Stern that he did, but like apparently they Jim Carrey walked into a restaurant. And I know this is like a Batman commentary or like talking like not Batman stuff. But apparently Jim Carrey walks into this restaurant. He's like, "Oh, Tommy Lee, what's going on?" He's like, "I don't like you. What are you like? Why are you coming up to me?" And like this is during filming of the movie. It's really bizarre. Wow. If that happened, that's unfortunate. Uh, like I, I'm gonna, I'll find you a link and I'll, I'll either tweet it to you or uh, email it to you. It's like three or four minutes long, and it's just really bizarre. Because I know that, like, I, I feel like I heard that Kilmer and Schumacher didn't get along, and I also heard that Tommy Lee and Jim Carrey didn't get along in the entire, the entire filming of this movie. The villains in this are. Uh... It's, when you look at the portrayal of the Riddler, clearly it's inspired by the t- Batman TV series. Uh, the Riddler directly inspired by it. it uh, the whole thing is an homage to that. Um, I think Tommy Lee Jones here is the set, doing kind of the same thing in a way. This is this this is a slightly darker and more violent version of what Two-Face probably would have been like on the Batman TV series, just like Jim Carrey's Riddler is a slightly darker, creepier version of the Riddler from the TV series, just like, frankly, Jack Nicholson's Joker in the first movie was a darker, more homicidal version of the Joker from the TV series. I mean, if you know, if you watch the Watch the the first couple of episodes, uh, the Joker's appearance in the old Batman TV series, the first couple of times he showed up, and compare that to Jack Nicholson's performance. And they are very similar. And, of course, part of that's because they're playing the same villain. But part of it is because a lot of the the approach to the characters, there wasn't that much distance between what was going on in that TV series and the adaptation of those characters in the TV series and what was happening in these this first set of Batman films, basically. Uh, I think it speaks to just how strong the impact of that TV series really was and how actually good that series was, despite the fact that we all, as Batman fans, go through a period in our lives, usually in our teens, when we just really hate and resent that show. <laughs> it, this is our first appearance of Jim Carrey as Edward Nygma, and it's... Like, this cast is pretty impressive. You're, like, Jim Carrey, Nicole Kidman, Tommy Lee Jones, Bell Kilmer, Ed Bagley Jr. is in the scene as well. Like, it's pretty impressive that they were able to get, like, so many movie, like, huge movie, like, stars. To, I mean, obviously they got Jack Nicholson and Danny DeVito, but, like, like it's not Tim Burton anymore. It's Joe Schumacher. Yeah. 
And look at look I, at the the wide shots in this. Uh, do you notice Jim Carrey is actually slumping down and leaning forward so that he's not quite so much taller than other people because he's you know he's a tall guy and he's standing there with and Val Kimmer was not a short guy but Jim Carrey I think is a little bit taller maybe a couple of inches taller and so he's he's got that and it fits his character the slouching but he doesn't quite slouch and bend the same way that he does and that you can see in those back off shots where he just and I wonder whether he just thought and did that himself or if Schumacher specifically told him to do that I feel like I feel like at this point Jim Carrey was at the like the the upswing because you had Ace Ventura, you had In Living Color, and now he, he like this is like the movie that really and I Dumb and Dumber sure yeah, yeah. before this as well and uh, like I feel like he's just like quite possibly bigger stars than all these people combined. You know Tommy Lee Jones just got didn't he just at this point win an Academy? There's the awesome bat signal. I love that in the sky like that. Um, didn't Tommy Lee just after, right before this, didn't he win an Academy Award for, uh... The Fugitive? Yeah. Uh, I think, was that before or was that after this? I feel like it's 93. I'm gonna look for it. I feel like it's 93 when The Fugitive came out. But, like, I just, like, this, this whole, like, thing right here between Bruce and Edward Nigma, like, I don't like this because he basically said, like, Get in touch with someone, we'll talk about it. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm mad at you now, so I'm going to become a supervillain. It just doesn't, like, to me, like, Edward Enigma is so much more than that. And I know they kind of played that in the animated series a little bit, but you had to because it was, like, a 22-minute episode. But, like, you really could have, like, developed this character a lot more since it's a two-hour movie. Yeah. And he gives a really good performance. I love all the cane work in here, too. That he does when he twirls the cane as the Riddler, and he looks, he looks really good, and so does Val Kilmer as Batman. Like Val Kilmer does not get enough credit as Bruce Wayne or Batman. Yeah, I think, it, and it's it's easier to see that in the Red Book edition. You know, there's so much of his performance and the actual uh, emotion and character was removed from this film. Right. You know, when uh, taking out the the there's a. a the, the whole thing about the Red Book and the, his, the flashbacks and all that that went so much deeper. But then there's also a, the interactions between him and Dick Grayson. And there's that great scene where Dick Grayson, he comes in and finds Dick training and fighting. And he's telling him, you know, he talks about and references the fact that he, not directly, but references the fact of uh, having killed the Joker uh, and talks about killing and that how it will stay with you and some of that makes it into the theatrical version, but there's a different level to it, I think, that, that was in the, some of the deleted stuff. Right. And The Fugitive was 1993. Yeah, okay. And, like, Batman is on a rooftop. He should never be surprised he's walking out. Commissioner, what? <laughs> like, it, it's so different, too, because, like, now, if, like, these movies, like, with, after watching Chris Nolan, like, he would just shoot on a rooftop. These are, like, weird, like... It's weird to see, like, the sets of these compared to, like, a Chris Nolan rooftop. So much yeah. Chris Nolan way. Just shoot on a rooftop. Looks so much better. She's, like, so trying to get, like, to, like, sleep with Batman, too. And she's just met. She's, like, the Vicky Vale of the movie. 
she makes a Catwoman reference as well. Skin tight vinyl and a whip. For homework. <laughs> yeah, they, I think what they were going for in this was uh, instead of they were going for a, a different kind of approach for the female character, like with uh, with Vicky Vale. She was a little bit more of a, a traditional classic kind of female lead, and I didn't. I don't think she was characterized. Okay, so Batman just leaps off the building, and I love this iconic scene of him like entering the Batmobile. What, what do you guys think about this iteration of the Batmobile? Are you fans of it? Yeah, it looks a little. I mean, it looks a little bit like a, a, an overly bright, uh, busy Nike shoe from the uh, the nineteen nineties, but that's okay. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a it's a Batmobile, so. I could do without the, the the glowing blue quite as much, but right. it's I still like it. I mean, I dig most of the Batmobiles. Looks like you could make some great toys of it. <laughs> yeah, it looks like it belongs on the set of an Aliens movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird, like it's weird how like obsessed Edward Nigma is of Bruce Wayne, like already so early on in the movie. I think the the idea is that he's always been obsessed with him. That's why when he sees him, he's like, you hired me personally. And I think he was obsessed already, and then he applied there because he was obsessed with Bruce Wayne. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of the running theme, so that when Bruce Wayne rejects him, Bruce Wayne was the guy that he was convinced would see his genius and appreciate him and would understand him. Uh, so I think that's kind of like he was already... a a crazy guy obsessed with Bruce Wayne. And he's Jim just Carrey, kind of redirected that. Jim Carrey kind of looks like Jared Leto with the long hair. Are you guys seeing that? Because I definitely see like a little Jared Leto and Jim Carrey right here. I cannot see that, I have to be honest. I don't no, see I'm not really seeing that myself. This whole... I don't... Like... Why are they stealing brainwaves? I don't understand. Well, the, he didn't know it would do that. Originally, the idea was just that it would uh, it would project the thing, the image, and the experience of the television directly into your mind. But an added side effect was that when he's wearing one, his is different than theirs, and it sucks the brain waves out of their head into his, which makes him smarter. Oh. Such an like this is like this is like an MTV music video right here with all the, like the green and <laughs> yeah the first riddle that we see from Jim from Edward Nigma in this movie. See, I like I really do enjoy all the riddles he gets Bruce because that is pretty ingenious and I let like they're not they're simple enough that we as the audience can get it. But it's they're like complex enough to where like oh okay I can see where Bruce would have issues with it because Bruce is like super intelligent and I like the dichotomy of like these two like super intelligent uh, super two super intelligent men of Gotham City trying to like always one up each other I really like the when he just drives up to the Wayne Manor and drops off that first riddle and then like the whole riddles throughout the movie are pretty pretty solid. Yeah, there's some good. Uh, I think he made a good Riddler. You know, uh, people are critical of it. He clearly went kind of 
went overboard a little. Uh, it, it was over the top frequently, mm-hmm. but the character, I think it fit, uh, he fit his performance to the character and to the film that the character was in, you know. Uh, again, I, I don't think you can underestimate how much it's inspired by the TV show, uh, and I, I think his, I think Carrie's Riddler, uh, I think he did a great job with the Riddler. I th- this whole movie is really underrated. I just think because it gets lumped in with Batman and Robin that people are so dismissive of it. But for the most part, it gets some really good performances from Jim Carrey, Val Kilmer. Um, I can't say Tommy Lee Jones is given a good performance, but like for those two people, those are pretty. Like the action for the '90s is pretty solid. Uh, it kind of re re reintroduced uh, Batman on the big screen after Batman Returns because of that. Uh, the backlash from the the McDonald's stuff, like I feel yeah. like it's, it's really underrated. It needs to be, uh, especially if you've taken a look at fans of Shailen on Batman and Mark Hughes. Take a look at that. If you can get a, your hand on a copy of the, the Red Book edition, like we're not telling you to because it's kind of like not like legal. But if you can like find it somewhere, take a look. Or if you like see it on YouTube or something, because I feel like you can watch parts of it on YouTube. Well, you can you can see some of the a few of the deleted scenes on YouTube, but the Red Book edition. Uh, the, I think it's important that people know that the Red Book edition is not just putting in the deleted scenes; it also edits out a lot of the dialogue and over-the-top camp moments from the film. It really tones that down. Whereas, you know, in this film, I guess. In Batman and Robin, on a scale of 1 to 10, the camp is at a 15. But on this, the camp is at about an 8, maybe, 7 or 8, the, like the comedy in camp. Movie. Yeah, and I think Red Book Edition tones it down from a 7 or 8 to about a 5, uh, which is a significant reduction. Um, and then the fact that it tones the camp down, that it gets rid of the neon that it changes some of the other color, like Two-Face is no longer bright purple. You know, his face, it's much different coloring, and then adds in all of those deleted scenes, some of which are you can't find on YouTube and other places. That It's all of those things that really, uh, and I think what, it, I think the combination is you end up with a film that's much more what Joel Schumacher wanted to make and would have made if he hadn't had to go back and change the film to fit the desire to sell Happy Meals and to be much more child, you know, like friendly. And again, I don't want to. I don't want to act like people that say that. You know, I see people all the time on Twitter that talk, for example, about. And I'm going to drag Marvel films into it, but people that say they criticize Marvel films and they'll say that they're kid friendly or that uh, kids watch them as if that's somehow a critique or a complaint about the movies or as if that means that adults can't watch them too and I'm like look that's you know this film clearly has appeal for kids and it's there for kids to enjoy as well as adults to enjoy mm-hmm. and uh, uh, not that the I don't think the Marvel films are campy or anything like that like this one this definitely has a lot of camp in it mm-hmm. uh, but I don't think it's so much that it overshadows the quality of the rest of the film it's not an A film. It's not even a B plus film. But I, I think this is definitely a B film. If I was, if I was going to give it on a, a, a grade, not like literally a B film, but 
you know, uh, I would I would grade this definitely as a B, uh, and I would grade Red Book Edition as a clearly a B plus. May, well, maybe I'd, I'd give the theatrical version a B minus. Actually, I think to be honest, I think it's a B minus, and I think the Red Book Edition is a B plus. I think that's a fair assumption. And Val Kilmer looks fucking good as Bruce Wayne in Batman. I don't care what anyone says. He as at the like he is at like top physical shape. Like, we haven't seen since, like, Top Gun of this era. Like, he looks good. And, like, he looks... His Bruce Wayne looks better, and I'm not trying to, like, di- like downgrade Michael Keaton's portrayal, but, like, like Val Kilmer, to me, was more in line with the Bruce Wayne that I come to uh, know from the animated series and the comics more so than yeah. Michael Keaton did. Yeah, I, I, I like that Val Kilmer's Bruce Wayne is sort of a mix between... The playboy, the kind of aloof playboy, which you get when he's talking to Edward Nigma in the scene earlier, and he takes his glasses off and he's cleaning them and he's just kind of ignoring what Edward Nigma is saying. At that whole, he's aloof, which is you, you know, kind of what we got a little bit of from the Bale Bruce Wayne. But he's not so aloof that he's not involved in his company. He's like in this, he's more a combination of the. The CEO who pays attention to what's happening in his company and has moral standards, and the socialite who's aloof and kind of uh, effete, and uh, you know, it, it's. I think it's a nice balance, I guess. And people say that it's a wooden performance, and I don't think it's a wooden performance. I think it's an. It's intentionally got that element, that standoffish element to it. Uh, it's part, just part of it's an it's a very much a decision that was made about how to portray Bruce Wayne compared to how he was portrayed previously. You know, the Keaton movies, he's walking around, he can't remember where stuff is, and he keeps losing things. And there's this whole like he's this absent-minded billionaire kind of thing uh, that's going on. And I, I that really, really did not like that at all about uh, the first Batman film. That I thought the Bruce Wayne portrayal completely failed for me in the first Batman movie. Uh, In Batman Returns, the Bruce Wayne portrayal is actually one of the few things that did work better for me than what had worked in, than uh, what we'd seen in the first Burton film. But this this is easily, of the first four films, this is the best Bruce Wayne by far. And that Wayne Manor, if you frequently watch Gotham, same Wayne Manor from this movie to that show. I don't know if you, I don't know if anyone has ever noticed that, but that's the same. No, I did not. I, I did not know that. Yeah, and why why does Chase Meridian have a heavy bag in her office? Shouldn't she be like working? Like I know, like when you're a psychotherapist, like you should be like doing stuff, and she's just like doing the heavy. It's just, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. And then Bruce Wayne just like knocks down the door. He couldn't just like knock. Hey, are you okay? used to there being danger everywhere that he tends to lose track of himself sometimes yeah (laughs) (sighs) but I do like it that he's going to see like a therapist like I think that's that's something that I always want why doesn't he just go like talk to someone about like his inner demons and he kind of like does that here and he like I wouldn't say like he like he's sitting on the couch or anything but he kind of like went with dating Chase Meridian um, yeah, I, I think you're right. There was a really go ahead. Sorry, 
No, I was just saying, like, it's it's really interesting to see, like, I remember watching, like, the behind-the-scenes of this movie, and, like, the, the, the screeners, like, yeah, you know, that's why we had, you know, you know, Chase Meridian, like, the whole Red Book thing that you see at the very end, like, that's why he, like, the whole Red Book was such, more, much more played in the, like, the script and the original, like, cut of it, and that's why he tries to, like, date a therapist and everything, so go ahead, though, Mark. Just that I like, I think there's some, there's, there's good subtext in this scene that he's coming here ostensibly to, to try to get some insight from a professional about who created these riddles that sent this to him. He wants to know more about the person, but actually we, he's already met her as Batman and there's that attraction that exists. And so that's a, a second layer to it. But then there's also the fact that he does know that he needs help. And that he's going, he has these issues to deal with, and yeah, and she has already. Which the, I think the flashbacks start uh, haven't started yet. Right. Uh, it's that starts coming later, but I think at this point she has said things to him already about you know trying to psychoanalyze Batman, him as Batman, and I think that made him. She had insight into him, and it's the first time he's talked to somebody who he was consciously aware of the fact that they have tried to kind of get into his head and figure out why he does the things he does and what kind of person he is, which are maybe questions that he has not fully come to terms with himself, obviously in this film, that's kind of a, that's a theme in the movie. So there are those different layers to it. uh, And I think this is a really effective scene and I don't think it gets, this is one of the scenes that stands out for me as an example of why this film is better than its reputation. Oh, for you sure. Know? And what, for fans who are wondering where we're at in the movie, we're at 33 minutes. We're in this, we're, it's where Bruce just breaks out in an hour. It's right outside the Hippodrome, the Gotham Charity Circus. Which, like, the, I don't understand why they're, if you're trying to sell tickets to the circus, why are you playing it on TV? <laughs> That doesn't make any sense to me. Just why would then why would you go? Just watch it from your home. If it got to put it on pay per view, I suppose. <laughs> now this scene, uh, I the whole this this circus scene and the earlier opening sequence. You were talking earlier about the how the fact that there's so much action and that there's so much better fight scenes in the movie compared to the earlier Batman films. And those scenes, and then the circuit, the sequence here at the circus, uh, are very much out of, straight out of com- pages of comic books. Oh yeah, for sure. And when people, a lot of the criticisms of this film, I've always maintained that if you took this movie, you took the script and the images and everything in this movie, if this movie didn't exist and instead this was all a graphic novel that was like just an alternate version of the origin of Robin, so to speak as a graphic novel, I don't think people would complain nearly as much about it. And I think people would accept it as a completely, mostly faithful, aside from minor changes to the origin, I think people would like it just fine. And I think it's very much like a comic book. Uh, Again, it has a little bit more camp and humor to it, but you know, there's actually oftentimes, particularly in the 90s, uh, the 80s and 90s, there would be a little bits of humor here and there in the comics, and I think that uh, when you're reading it to yourself, it maybe doesn't come off as cheesy, perhaps, in people's minds. So, 
Uh, this... You definitely get a different feel for things when you just read it, and then when you have it said out loud, you get different yeah. feelings for it, and that's a good example of that. It comes to the camp of her line. And we, yeah. in this scene, we see the fur. We see Dick Grayson, who is portrayed as a thirty-five-year-old man by Chris O'Donnell. <laughs> the boy wonder. I don't know. It would it would have made it so much better if he was, if he was younger. Like I really, I watched. Before I watched this movie, I watched the Batman the Animated Series, Robin's Reckoning, the two. I'm sure I'm sure everyone's seen that yeah. episodes. And that just works so much better than his age. I just wish I'm still waiting for that young Robin. I understand like it doesn't make sense to have why Batman would put a young kid in danger like that. At the same time it just makes it makes his journey that much more it makes it his journey that much better throughout the like he because he'll actually take a like a like a, a journey throughout better and it, like he'll actually grow and mature or this he's kind of like already set in his ways i'd say like he's got to be 2021 20, no he's set he's about 17 i think in this actually uh that's why the police kind of bring him to bruce and and he says that he'll take uh responsibility and and uh, let him stay there and he doesn't have to be like taken somewhere else by the state or whatever. I think he's supposed to be 17 in this. See, this is just like straight out of the comic books. There's no, and it's just bizarre. Like this movie, I don't like it needs to stop being lumped together with Batman and Robin. I understand like the director, like the same director directed those, those movies. But at the same time, like this needs to be set separate from that. And it's weird when I, I went to Best Buy like a month ago to pick up a phone case, and I like I always frequent the movies just to see what's what's on the shelves, and I saw the Dark Knight trilogy all next to Batman Begins, the Dark Knight, and uh, the Dark Knight Rises, and I saw the the original like the four originals, and it was just Batman and Batman Returns. There was no Batman Forever, and there was no Batman and Robin. It's really bizarre how those two movies have been so lumped together for so long. Yeah. And I know that they, they play... Batman. Unfairly. Un yeah. I would say unfairly, yeah. Batman and Robin, like, like has the same beats. Like, if you were to, like, look at the s script breakdown, it has, like, pretty much the same beats as Batman Forever. But this, this movie's so much more elevated and so much... Like, it's so much better than that movie. Yeah, they... This... No matter... People talk about... People do lump them together when they mention it. And, uh... They talk about them as if they're both just these kids' movies that are just selling toys. But the truth is, there is a lot of a lot more. Uh, there's an edge to this, and a lot more darkness. I mean, look what's happening right here in this scene. You know, the bomb at the circus, the parents dying in front of the kid. That wasn't, you know, that. Uh, and and it, in all fairness, Batman and Robin does have Alfred's, you know, health, and it has uh, Freeze's wife. So there, there are. It's not true to say that there's just completely no character development or any drama at all in Batman and Robin, uh, but the the films are not the same. They are not this this movie is closer to the first Burton Batman than it is to Batman Forever. I would argue. I agree. Uh, aside from the aesthetics, I think that there is definitely an argument to be made that this is closer to uh, the 1989 Batman film than it is to Batman and Robin. And I, there's there are one one of my major gripes in this movie is how Bruce Wayne stands up and he yells, "I'm Batman," and nobody heard him. Yeah, 
like I have a huge, huge, huge issue with that. But that side. Yeah. It seems very unlike Bruce Wayne just to do that in the middle of a crowd. <laughs> yeah. Here's him. How does that even work? Like, I've gone to many sporting events and many concerts, and I can, like, if I'm screaming at the top of my lungs like Bruce was doing there, people can hear me. And for, like, Chase Meridian, who's this doctor who obviously needs, like, hearing aids and everyone in the crowd, nobody heard him, I'd find that hard to believe. And this is, like, pretty yeah. chilling to see, like, the, the whole cutting of the scene is so, like, it's cut so wonderful. It's always going back and forth from the bomb to Bruce to, to Two-Face, and then, the, and like, Bruce is really trying to, and then, yeah. man. It's so well done, so well put together. Like, this might be one of the, like, one of the highlights of this movie, just this whole scene put together. And I agree, so yeah. well. The editing here, it's it's really, really well edited. Uh, to The tension is there. The mix of... The, there are quick moments. There's a few moments of a little bit of goofiness and humor uh, in Two-Face's reaction, but then there's the tension, and it takes you from being tense for a moment. It's There's tense, and then there's a little bit of the humor, then there's the fear, then the, there's the action, and the excitement. And it's just jumping back and forth between from one to the other to the other. And it's interesting that it has you laugh at Two-Face being like, oh, and he's flipped his coin, and you go from being like, ha-ha, to being like, ah. Right. From one to the, the that transition immediately to that next shot with the bombs, uh, it's it's really nice, you know? And, and Chris O'Donnell gives a great performance. Like, that, like, him, like, looking so bereft after, like, he should be, like, cheering. He saved all these people, but the aftermath of it and like the, everyone kind of like gathering around him just like the circus gathering around him like so like chilling and just like like right out of like the comic book yeah it's good imagery you know what that shot just reminded me of unrelated uh train of thought that overhead shot there reminded me uh if you haven't done this before put in the blu-ray of the dark knight rises and look at the shot at the end of the movie when they're going to unveil the Batman statue and everyone is sitting looking at it, it's a Joker face. Yeah, I the saw shot, I just saw that yesterday. I would never noticed it before. And uh, so, somebody posted it, and I was like, wow, that is really amazing. I had never seen it, but there's, I don't I don't for a second believe it was unintentional. It had. It was clearly intentional. Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw that. I don't know. Kyle, Kyle go find that. It's, it's pretty amazing. That sounds amazing. I'm going to go look for this later. <laughs> And I love, I love Alfred, like, say what you will about Michael Goff as an actor. Like, I love him because of the horror yeah. film. Like, like I, I have heard, like, Michael Caine's so much better and blah, blah, blah. Like, Michael Caine is a wonderful actor. You can't take any credit away from him. But Michael Goff, like, I grew up on this Alfred. So, people on the internet, lay off. And his, his the way that he is able to uh, have that relationship... The separate relationships between Bruce and Dick in this movie are so indicative of the real Alfred because yeah. Bruce needs something so much more different than than Dick does because he, that Bruce was old was younger sorry Bruce was younger when his parents were murdered and and Alfred has seen this kind of same thing but at a different stage in Dick's life. So he know he him already going through that, he knows exactly what how to kinda of like be for for Dick. 
And I love, I love this. And they, they dr- throw that line out of Metropolis too in the scene. Yeah. Shared universe. <laughs> A little hint in there. And they also they say Nightwing in it too. Yeah. Yeah, I liked the I liked the fact that his uh, his Robin in this was really kind of an amalgamate. His it mixes different characters, uh, his personality. He's Dick Grayson, but then there's also a little bit of uh, uh, Jason Todd in there actually, and a, there's uh, I got uh, and his character is a mix of Robin and Nightwing both, and I I think that that worked actually and. Uh, I think he did a really good. I think O'Donnell did a, a, a great job with the character. It's not the it's not the ideal cinematic uh, in, interpretation of Robin, but it's a very good one. Oh yeah, I really I really enjoy this. I just it, like I said, like it, this movie, and we'll say it again. This movie is so underrated, and it needs to be like. Like, I remember collecting the little McDonald's, like, cups that they had. Like, the collector's cups. Because this yep. <laughs> Like, I still yeah. have them. They're still, like... I still have them. There's, like, set away, like, in this, like, nice, like, glass cupboard. And every time I eat, like, I take a look at those those Batman, like, the... Like, the Batman they had, like, the Riddler, Two-Face, Batman, and Robin. No, no yeah. Chase Gritting and no Alfred. I don't know why that didn't happen. But, like, it's just... This, this movie was a box office juggernaut and now this will be the first we're at 44 minutes this will be the first uh lead into uh bruce's past and his first flashback scene and i think that the this is really reminiscent of the 89 version just shot a little bit differently but so i don't know did, did anybody else see that like just the parallels between the two yeah, it's it's a little bit more dreamlike, and I think in '89 it was more a memory, and in this it's more of a nightmare. Mm-hmm. This is Bruce. I think the first one in '89, we're seeing him remembering how it really happened, and here we're seeing him almost having his. It's not. It's the memory framed as a nightmare. It's very kind of uh, express. No, not expressionist, I guess, but it's. Uh, a little bit, but for the most part, it's just that dream kind of portrayal of it all. And this is the first cinematic version of young Bruce at the at the wake of his parents. And I don't like. There's not many uh, representations of the wake in the comics. Maybe I'm just not remembering. Like, no, there's not. Like the way that this handled here in the Red Book, which should have been played up so much more in this movie. It's so poignant. And so well done and so well written. It just doesn't make... But like, the wake's just so, like... Man, it's just, like, so gut-wrenching. Then Alfred's right right over his shoulder trying to... Trying to heal his, uh... His... his to me, like, Alfred's a father. And, and Bruce is his son. So I'll know I'll get hate on that on Twitter. <laughs> but to me... What's happening? Alfred Sorry. is uh, talking to uh, Dick about... Uh, swinging in and Dick's given the story how he swung in and saved his uh, brother's life and he swung in flew in like a robin and we see the the classic robin suit yeah well like I was saying like to me like like Alfred has and I know I'm gonna get beat up for it but like to me like Alfred has always vowed to take care of Bruce as his own son 
No, I think that I think he always had a fatherly uh, sentiment about Bruce. I, I think that's undeniable. Uh, I think that it, how much Bruce saw him as a father figure depends. I don't think that I think he was more of an he was more of an uncle figure than a father figure for Bruce. I think in the in the comics in particular and in these films, I believe. Uh, because if he was a true father figure, I think that that would impact how much Bruce, you know, the, the Batman and the Batman legend is very driven by the notion of Bruce Wayne missing his father and not having his father. So if you had a true strong father figure that took his father's place in his life, as long as Alfred did, then it would almost be an insult to Alfred if Bruce still was this obsessive about his, you know, his father. <laughs> so, uh, I, but I think you're right. I think Alfred absolutely always looked at Bruce as a son. And I think that there's a, a bit of melancholy in that actually. And like this whole, this whole sequence is really kind of like, it ends really like weirdly. I just like, I'm yeah, like, this scene, like this scene, takes like a lot of crap, and deservedly so. How, yep. <laughs> like, like this? Not only is it one of the slowest Batmobile chases, but how the fuck does Bruce get the Batmobile on top of the, like, on the on the side of the the building, and then wh how does he get off of it? Where, <laughs> what? Does he just well, hook his? Why is okay? Batman has an army of villains there, and his sole purpose is to just escape them. Yes. Which that bothered me that he's like, well, I've got to get away, and that's his whole thing is just I have to get away rather than controlling. You know, he doesn't open he doesn't open the Batmobile and like toss a line out and jump out and program the Batmobile to just like stop and to armor up so that he can take out the bad guys. He's just concerned with getting away, which, granted, they have machine guns, so you could argue that he was like, I'd rather not get shot. But at the end of the day, this I think this is kind of just an obligatory chase scene, and I think that it was very by the numbers, and it wasn't very inspired. And this was just awful. <laughs> I mean, like, this is just a studio note. Hey, we need like a Batmobile chase, because that Batmobile would cost so much money. Can we do something? Oh, okay. Like, to me, this is a Scream Studio note. Like, this scene is whole, was noted so much. And it just, ugh, ugh, gross. Now all those guys are dead, right? Yeah. <laughs> Batman <laughs> killed all those people. What the fuck? So Two-Face, the, the main villain, is standing down there, and right now Batman is still driving away. He doesn't stop the car and say, well, now's a good time to jump down there and take the guy out that killed Dick Grayson's parents. So, yeah, none of this just doesn't work for me. None of this worked for me. And, like, this whole, like, uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out who I am as a villain doesn't work for me either. Just, like, oh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the, the suit from, like, this weird, like, 19th Depression era, like, game that you'd find in, like, a bar or saloon just doesn't work for me either. <sighs> and then, like, his whole lair is so weird, too. Like, to me, like, I understand, like, Two-Face, 
I know I kind of see what they're going for here, but to me, like this is not what Two Faces Lair would look like at all. Like he would not have the time to go and like uh, have like half rooms and I don't know. It's so bizarre. Yeah, they're just trying to play up the whole Two Face aspect a little bit too much. To oh yeah, it just gets kind of absurd and it's kind of cringy. And like Drew Barrymore and yeah. Azar, like what the hell? And it's like, come on, like this could be like another scene devoted to a flashback sequence of Bruce or Bruce and Dick, you know, talking. And here we are, just like nothing's going on. Well, the problem is, there. This scene is a stand-in for having any actual character development for Two Face. Mm -hmm. What they did is they cut out the scene. Like Two Face is just he he enters this movie pre-existing as is. Uh, we don't get any real setup for him, and so his character doesn't have much personality, uh, not much characterization. So this scene of, oh, look, we're going to show that he has these two different competing sides, but it was a really just kind of empty way to try to portray that. So uh, unfortunately, they with the, the absence of the original opening scene at Arkham and without any additional extended back uh, flashback to his origin and just showing that he was once a good man who believed obsessively in law and order who had his whole world kind of you know kind of corrupted and went mad uh we don't get that we just get a guy who's just acts weird and is like sometimes i eat boar and other times i like creamy food or you know <laughs> and they're like here's characterization and it doesn't work that way oh my god that's why I'm so happy Christopher Nolan decided to tackle the character and give us a more proper origin and more proper right. characterization for him. And it, Tommy Lee Jones' performance here really doesn't do any justice for the character. Oh yeah, it's just really, it's just like not, I feel like he's trying to put, I feel like he's trying to like, like deliver like a Jack Nicholson Joker kind of like, just way over the top and way just like, I don't know. Like, I like Tommy Lee Jones as an actor, like I like his portrayal in The Fugitive and I don't know if any of you guys have seen like his portrayal in Lincoln. Like he's a really fine actor. And I wish yeah. he like like done that here. Just play it dark and like let let you have two guys who are playing over the top villains. You need and like villain team ups don't work. We saw what happened in Spider Man three. Well, I don't know. The I don't think that villain team ups just inherently can't work. I think it's it's a case of whether you do it well or not because mm -hmm. Uh, there have been superhero films that had multiple villains that I think did work, and uh, and I think the problem with Tommy Lee, the problem with this is his character just doesn't have much characterization or background in the first place. We don't know what his motive is. I mean, what is his motivation really in this movie? Uh, I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> and it's a very they couldn't really go for a darker portrayal of him because that wasn't what the movie was going for. That The movie was specifically going, trying to get away from too dark of a portrayal because that's what they feel had gone wrong previously. So I think that tasked as he was with delivering a, a villain who fit in this kind of more family-friendly, kind of campier world, and having to play alongside Jim Carrey, who is stealing every scene he's in, mm -hmm. 
I mean, if you're in a scene as a, a costume villain with Jim Carrey and you're dressed up like Tommy Lee Jones is here and Jim Carrey is standing there looking like that, doing this stuff, then the pressure as an actor to try to, like, to respond to that and to give as good as you're getting has got to be pretty intense. Right. I think that's a lot of what was really happening with that Two-Face. I would have liked to have seen um, if if they ever do like an edit of this movie, like a fan edit, if they just take out all of Tommy Lee's scenes and would that make the movie better? I feel like it probably would. If, if, as long as they don't put that beginning Red Book edition scene in it, I feel like it really would. Because like he doesn't do anything for the plot. Like this whole plot is the rhythm plot. Like he just wants to steal brain waves and like, like there's just really no reason. It's just like well, I don't know. That that was the best part of the scene right there. The I look at how many you've got Dutch angles. The the film goes from wide shots to tracking shots to handheld cameras. You know, uh, it. It's, it, it mixed a steady cam and a handheld camera in the same scene, zooming in, pulling back. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot more complexity to what Schumacher did as a director in this film than people give it credit for. Again, I mean, we can just we can beat that dead horse through the re- this entire movie and point out things, but that little s- segment right there, from the flipping of that coin and then the two of them on their little crimes mini crime spree scene uh that was a really terrific scene and it also visually uh was very similar to a scene out of the old batman tv series and then that whole this whole like show me how to punch but that scene before with uh alfred and dick like doing laundry i don't need yeah. to see that in a batman i just like just uh yeah, it was a it was uh, it was a weird placement. <laughs> it was it's definitely a, weird placement. Screams like like I'm watching an MTV like real world edition of this like these two people are just talking about their a party the night before just doing laundry. I don't need to see this. Show me Bruce. Show me like some real. Well, we really this is the first time in like what a few minutes since we've seen like Bruce. And the edit, that's a weird edit there because you're right that that scene comes we get the, we have the Riddler meeting Two-Face and talking him into helping on a crime spree and then we go to a shot of them and their first crime then suddenly we see the laundry scene then we go back to two more shots of them on a crime spree and then Bruce seeing and hearing about the crime spree so really that scene when the laundry room was nothing but a placeholder. It was there to break up the other scenes because we had been on we had been watching Two-Face and the Riddler for so long. They wanted to put something else in there, but it really stands out like a sore thumb. And this looks like a good spot to uh, to take a quick break. So that was part one of two of the commentary tracks for Batman Forever featuring Mark Hughes. Uh, check it us out next week for part two. Stay tuned! I am the night. I am the night.